Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gaddy, is Mr. Tiltariser. Hello! Merry Thanksgiving last week to you. Why weren't we here at the Thanksgiving table last week at Thanksgiving? That's not really the important thing. The important thing is that this is going out a week later than we intended. This was going to be our Thanksgiving special. Because round about certain holidays, we allow ourselves to take a more American tangent. And what could be more American than Benny Hill? But hang on a second, because Benny Hill, he's one of those Britishers that you hear about. He's not an American. Whatever do you mean? Everybody knows what I mean. He's famous. Over here, people think of British comedy. Many of them suddenly think of Benny Hill. And they're surprised to find out how big he wasn't in the UK. Not that he was nobody, but he was not talked about in terms of Mock and Wise, the two Ronnies. I watched him as a child in the 80s, and he was just kind of there. Some of his stuff seemed to come from non-observation. It was meant to be parodies of things that are around, but there didn't seem to be any particularly keen eye and sometimes they're just framing devices for old jokes it wasn't all a matter of the arguments about his treatment of women well i'm going to take a slightly different view he was never my favorite performer growing up but i think this might be i'm wondering if this might be an age thing i mean you're a couple of years older than myself and i wouldn't been watching benny hill i don't know if i was watching a great deal of his stuff in the very late 80s but when we grew up watching them sort of mid-1980s and what have you, and I would have only been about, what, six or seven or what have you. And, yeah, to me, he was just a jolly, silly comedian. I certainly wouldn't have been... Well, for, for a start, I would not have been aware that there were old jokes at that age. Obviously, now you can see how many times we'll talk about this in the course of the show. We'll talk about the amount of repetition that there is of certain skits and ideas and so on over the years, but... Yeah, I knew there was. I knew there was something about Benny Hill. I knew that they had scantily clad women in it, and so that made it sort of unique as far as uh, a late entertainment sketch was concerned. So I knew that that was a, that was a thing with Benny Hill. I knew that. Maybe I was just a very jaded child. <laughs> See, the way you're talking about Benny Hill there is like the way that we would talk about BBC comedies nowadays, but. You shouldn't be like that when you're eight or nine or something. <laughs> you just enjoy it and say, hey, look, funny but man didn't. on television. Well, that was the thing. Funny it man was, on television. I wasn't overthinking it. It was just like, oh, it's Benny Hill. Well, it's a comedy. It's easy to absorb, so I'll watch it. But I won't go, hey, oh, oh, look at that bit. That was great. That was, it, it, it didn't give me any sort of glow inside. And then people who were around in the 60s started telling me, saying, there was a different Benny Hill. You missed the real Benny Hill. Benny Hill was so much more interesting when he was in black and white. He was doing parodies of TV shows, parodies of commercials, and he'd clearly paid attention to them. Parodying adverts at a time when the BBC didn't entirely like to admit that ITV existed. And then last year we watched Christmas Night with the Stars. And we saw that Benny Hill. 1964. Yes. Doing a parody of World in Action that looked like a 1964 world in action. And it was broad and silly at the same time, but he got the look right and the feel right, and that seems to make it funnier. So we decided we had to investigate Benny Hill's BBC work and also answer for ourselves the question, at what point did modern, innovative Benny Hill stop being that person and become either 
ho-hum dull old Benny Hill if you're jaded, or nice, broad, comfortable Benny Hill if you're not jaded? So what did we watch to answer this question? Well, now here is the first bit of transatlantic business. Because in order to watch Benny Hill's BBC work, we actually had to go to America. And we had to look at a DVD compilation. It was released by Warner in 2005. It's a Region 1 DVD and it's called Benny Hill The Lost Years. It's free one-hour compilations plus some extra material. And this is a good chunk of the surviving BBC material. A lot of the BBC material doesn't survive, but there's enough of it that we can get a, a good idea of Benny Hill's BBC work. And this is not available in the UK. In fact, I don't actually remember ever seeing Benny Hill on the BBC in the UK. That Christmas Night with the Stars that we're speaking about there, the one from 1964, now that was shown in a slightly edited form in 1991. So I presume that the skit would have been in there. But I've never seen the BBC repeat any of those bits and pieces, any kind of compilations, anything like that at all. So that's the first little oddity, is that you actually have to go to the States <laughs> in order to watch the UK's BBC Benny Hill shows. But anyway, this has got material in them from 1957, I think it is, all the way through to 1968. Benny Hill, for those who don't know, Benny Hill was one of the band of post-war entertainers who started off in the theatres and variety. And Benny Hill didn't tend to project particularly well, so he was never really a successful stage comic. He was picked up by an agent during that time, and he was paired with Reg Varney as Reg Varney's straight man. And from there, eventually, he got into radio. And then in 1954... Everything suddenly happened for Benny Hill. 1954 is Benny Hill's year. Beginning of the year, he becomes Archie Andrews' cohort on the radio. Peter Broth, radio ventriloquist. He begins appearing in a BBC variety show, which is not intended as a Benny Hill vehicle per se, but he is a resident comic in the show. And in this show, he unveils this skit of What's My Line? which, at the time, of course, big, big show on BBC, hosted by Eamon Andrews, and Benny Hill plays all four roles. He plays David Nixon, Isabel Barnett, Barbara Kelly, and Gilbert Harding. And this is on a live show being performed at the TV theatre. And he's only got about, I think, 30 seconds or so to do these little costume changes. So no split screen at this time, but this is the skit then that sort of made him a big, big name in BBC television circles. And then by the end of the year, when BBC announces its new lineup for the winter, he becomes the first person to have his own regular Saturday night entertainment show. And that is the Benny Hill Show, and that begins in January of 1955. And unlike a lot of performers, was not working a weekly schedule. He was performing in hour-long monthly shows. And he never had... A weekly show that wasn't, you know, like repeats, compilations, anything like that. He always worked at least a month apart, quite often maybe only sort of three or four times in a year. So Benny Hill shows, that was another thing about Benny Hill shows. I remember watching in the 1980s, they were special because they weren't always on. They were occasions, every quarter or so there'd be a new Benny Hill show. So 
like we say, Benny Hill Show begins 1955, runs on BBC television all the way through to 1968, and it's from that body of work that we're drawn from today. So I guess part of my problem was not liking him much in the 80s, and then finding that people over here would <laughs> expect me to be happy that he was super famous in the US. Like, but what about all this other stuff that my country's produced? Not Benny Hill, okay. I have a statement, a solicited statements from friends over here. One particular friend, actually, who has heard of Morecambe and Wise and all that stuff. That rascal Neptune, Neptune J. Max, regular listener and steampunk dandy. Here is a statement, and I'll try and not make this sound like a declaration of war or abdication. <laughs> Hang on. Not only reading out other people's words. Adam Carolla once said that Benny Hill is as American as the Beatles. You can criticise a lot of the music hall-styled low comedy that was his trademark, but no one can deny his impact across the pond. Monty Python certainly opened the door for many Americans to explore the rich humour of British television comedy, but it was Benny Hill who brought it home to middle America. Before Benny Hill, the face of British comedy to average Americans was probably Terry Thomas, who was funny to us because he was ridiculously British to the nth degree. But Benny Hill wasn't alien to us. His comedy spoke a common language for the common people and in many ways was the Rosetta Stone for many Americans to understand something of the British art of absurdity and satire, which we here aren't so good at. As far as his work goes, I very much liked his early programmes. It pleased me to see him work in some of the lost art of silent screen comedy into his shows, and I place Fred Scuttle amongst the all-time best of comic characters. He also had a wonderfully funny supporting group, especially Jackie Wright, Jeremy Hawke, Ronnie Brody and Bob Todd. They were often funnier than Hill himself. As he got older, his shows became increasingly embarrassing to watch. But that is not much different from what happened to the great Bob Hope and his television specials. And perhaps it was not even them so much as the world around them changing too much. In a way, Benny Hill's style of comedy was already quaint and dated long before he came on the scene. And maybe the resurgence of that style was necessarily a relatively short-lived fad. Tommy Cooper could be said to have rode this fad during the same time. But that might not be entirely fair either. Some of the success of Benny Hill was his mixing of the old silent film music hall comedy with the cutting-edge sensibility of the then-popular carry-on humour. I've never heard anybody describe carry-on as cutting-edge before. But I like it. I'm complete agreement. <laughs> Regardless, it definitely worked for its time, and because a lot of it was such an odd mixture of different eras, much of it is still quite funny and hasn't dated as much as one might expect. Now, I grew up with that he was becoming embarrassing phase of his career so that's my issue now actually i'm gonna agree entirely with neptune there i think it's a really really good assessment thank you for sending that in neptune i'm also gonna agree with him there about the carry-ons seriously because films like say carry-on loving is a good example and also carry-on camping to an extent as well think about when those films were made think about when they're set they're set in the present day and they're set in the permissive society they're set in britain post the social reforms under roy jenkins they are cutting edge they are exactly where britain was and was becoming at that time so yeah i completely agree with that and benny hill shows when he transfers the thames 1969 also start to become more risque now, you could argue, of course, that they become more risque, they become more risque and more risque and more risque, and even though he attempts right at the end to sort of slightly pull back on that, by that point, the damage is done because where 
Britain was becoming uh, a more sort of liberated society in the late 1960s, eventually that comes to a halt and, and reaches a sort of plateau. And yet Benny Hill's still doing his bits and pieces in the early 1980s as he was in the early 1970s. But one thing that interests me there as well is that when, when Neptune's talking about the, the names of various people who have appeared with Benny Hill, one of the names he mentions, Jeremy Hawk. Yes. Now, Jeremy Hawk we've seen a lot of in these BBC compilations. Now, the interesting thing is that I'm not aware, and I would love to hear from anybody who knows otherwise, I'm not actually aware of Benny Hill's BBC shows ever having a great deal of television airplay in the States. The reason that Benny Hill became huge in America was because in the 1970s, Thames Television purchased airtime on an American TV station which had two large affiliates, one in New York and one in Los Angeles, and they showed Benny Hill on there along with other Thames TV programs, primarily to catch the eye of broadcasters there. And Benny Hill became a huge success during that week-long run and rapidly then went into syndication. And a lot of commercial stations in America showed Benny Hill late at night. It was considered actually risky material. Sometimes it would have a TVMA rating in the States. And that's even with edits being made, supposedly for the, the most salacious part. BBC America subsequently showed Benny Hill shows. But again, as far as I'm aware, I think there were Thames television shows as well, so I'm not aware of the BBC shows ever having a great deal of airplay. And that would be understandable because there's some very good film parodies in them, but there's also quite a lot of material which is directed at the home audience, parodies of British television formats and British TV commercials and so on. Of course, the reason that Thames made a play for Benny Hill in 69 was because he had 14 years of being a huge BBC star behind him. So it's it's really difficult to be able to sort of pinpoint one particular era of Benny Hill and say, oh, that's classic Benny Hill, because I suppose everybody's got their own opinion on that. Everybody's got their own views. It depends on what you saw when you were growing up and the first time you ever had exposure to him and so on. But to get on track, we're, we're, we're talking specifically today about the BBC shows, and they they don't differ greatly in terms of the format from what came later on at Thames. We've still got, quite often we've got Benny coming out saying hello to the audience. He might do a musical number early on. We've got skits in which is straight man, who's quite often in this area is Jeremy Hawk. And so if you're not familiar with Jeremy Hawk, just think Henry McGee. It's it's that kind of... Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not, not comparing the two actors. I'm saying in the roles. Okay. Imagine in the sketches itself, if you think Henry McGee, straight man to Fred Scuttle, for example, it's going to be Jeremy Hawk, largely in BBC era. And... You've also got, for example, Neptune, J. Max just mentioned there, Ronnie Brody turns up quite a bit in these shows. Also, Fred Quilly. Can't think of his name. Felix Bonnet. There you go. Yes, Felix Bonnet turns up quite a bit in these shows as well. As does Dave Freeman, who was Benny Hill's co-writer for much of this as well. And also, one face that keeps on appearing again and again, June Whitfield also. June Whitfield appears in quite a few of these sketches, but more so than not is Patricia Hayes. She appears in an inordinate amount of these BBC sketches and she transfers with Benny Hill to Thames for the first couple of years there as well. So, okay, what was your first impression then, Till, when you were watching these? So you come off the back of that Christmas Night with the Stars skit. Did you go straight to these without watching any Thames material in between? Because I know you've seen some Thames material yes. recently. It's interesting you're saying about the carry-ons and about, oh, crying and camping, this is the present day. 
but the relationship with the modern world is very different. Carry on camping is part of that, is it fair to say, middle-aged mindset. Certain comedy comes up to the modern world, turns to its audience, goes, that's all a lot of rubbish though, isn't it really? Hey, ball beef and carrots. Yeah, you can ignore the experts. And I believe I'm right in saying that Sid James cold-bloodedly murders an entire field full of it. He does. He, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't. He doesn't do it cold-bloodedly. No. <laughs> Every okay, okay, wait. So this has to be addressed, and no better place to do it than here. This is the bit of carry-on camping that everybody forgets about until it turns up. It's the ending, and it's like, oh, hang on a minute, there's a lot of hippies in a field, and it's like, God, I've forgotten the film ended like this. Everything else in Carry On Camping is just quaint and slightly dated, but very, very nice and calm and lovely, and then suddenly 1969 just kicks you right in the stones, because suddenly it's Woodstock in the field next door, and it's nothing dates it faster than that. I mean, this must have been dated in, like, 1972 or three. Yeah, why do they want to have to listen to all this drivel coming from the next field? So, no, they, 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 they sort them out. They don't do anything nasty. They don't like that. But I know some people some, some people really have a bee in their bonnet about that, as if it's all oh, these horrible middle-aged people putting down the youths and how disgusting and disgraceful and what have you. Not nonsense. I'm going more from descriptions than actually having watched the film. Have you ever actually seen all of Carry On Camping? Yes. Including that bit? Not this century, including that bit. I remember there's something about threading something through their love beads. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and then they tie it to a tractor and so they can then just sort of... And they all choke to death. No, they don't. They don't no, no. They just herd them <laughs> in a certain direction and say, look, you're not welcome here. I'm just sure so, I said, saw somebody say that the hippies get killed and I thought, I don't remember that bit, but I will make it a point never to watch the film so that I can keep bringing this up in Gary's presence because even though I can't see you, you're probably turning purple. <laughs> I've seen that scene described on the internet as hateful. Come on. Get a grip. For goodness sake. So anyway, there's one way of looking at modern culture for the sake of comedy and going, there. Benny Hill's relationship with modern culture in these 60s ones is different. He's not necessarily saying, hey, pay attention to this, everybody. This is really good. He's just like, right, what's happening now? What's funny about that? Was there's this and this and this and I could probably slot in a few standard jokes here and, and a few jokes there and yeah there there you go he's he's not condemning it he's not condoning it he's just kind of saying so this have you looked at this this is quite amusing if you look at it this way it's all very nicely observed uh, weirdly it doesn't seem to have that much of a point of view which is normally a bad thing in parody but here he just brings certain things out and sometimes they are framing devices for old jokes but they're all very well set the jokes within the setting so his parody of the knack which i haven't seen yet we might be watching it next year but just that feeling that benny must go to the cinema a lot he must go and see all different types of movie and when he's sitting there watching you think hey this would be funny if this happened and then he comes back. What about Dear Freeman? What's his role in the writing partnership? How long is he there for? Dave Freeman is with Benny Hill for, as far as I remember, throughout the BBC years. And by the time of the switch to Thames, Dave Freeman is starting to get more into sitcom writing. And also, Benny Hill himself 
there's a criticism of him that has been sort of thrown at him over the years. He tended not to give credit to Dave Freeman for some of the material which they originally may have co-written or which he may have written himself and which he's then gone on to use repeatedly thereafter. Dave Freeman himself never actually leveled this as a criticism at Benny Hill. Freeman is actually, in some ways, he is at the forefront of making sure that a lot of the material is original and fresh because Benny Hill himself and I, I would sort of when, when you're talking about Benny Hill using certain devices as vehicles for old jokes I'm not so sure that Benny Hill would necessarily have thought about it in terms of old jokes or new jokes I think he just thinks about it in terms of jokes and there's no doubt about it that he was something of a magpie and he collected jokes and ideas from here and there and everywhere. Most famously, the character, the Chinese character that he did called Chow Mein, was lifted from the American comedian Buddy Hackett. And so Dave Freeman, you could actually argue, is responsible for some of Benny Hill's more original work, whereas Benny Hill himself was more interested in, okay, little idea here, that can go into there, that can go into this slot, that can go into this slot, and so on. Can I, can I make a really broad point here? How broad is this point? It's not really about Benny Hill. Or rather, it will eventually lead back to Benny Hill. It's about the cultural changes of the 60s. Despite the fact that people talk about youth culture and the Beatles and all, what, what all the under-25s are doing, was the cultural... Revolution's a bit too big a word. Was the big cultural shift in the 60s a bit more for everybody than other cultural changes before and after. What I'm thinking is, so somebody Benny Hill's age can actually go down to the cinema, watch an art film, go back to the BBC, and do something faintly parodying it. And everybody's got, you know, everybody's a little artier these days. Everybody's a little bit more open. He's not alienating the audience over 25, even when he's doing, like, his Mick Jagger impression. Whereas... I'm trying to think, at any other time, it would be more incongruous and there'd be a bit more of, what are they doing? I'm thinking like the two Ronnies, crop of the flop sketches, they're a bit odd. Though Spider-Woman is a fantastic song. So it's partially Benny being nice and observant and modern, but it's also partially he can trust his audience to be observant and modern. Also, what was the situation in Europe in the 60s? Were the 60s a little bit more European? Well, I think from bits and pieces that we've watched, say things like Top of the Pops and some of the Eurovision Song Contest, for example, bits and pieces like that, I, I get the impression from 60s television in general that there's a bit more of an adventurous spirit about it. So this is a decade of the Apollo missions, for example, and it's also the decade of broadening communications. So you've got that Business, for example, you'll know the name of this, the, the thing, the BBC thing they did with the Beatles. Our world. Oh, I don't know if I've made this point before, but I think I will make it. I think that was actually a very shameful moment in British history. That's one of the worst things Britain ever did. So there's a meeting. Right, so we're going to do this thing that's going to bring the entire world together. And uh, so, what, you know, so Holland, there's going to be some, oh, there's some school children and they're going to sing a little song they wrote. And, uh, Ruritania, you're going to show that nice old cathedral that's just been restored. And under the US, they're going to show the outside of the White House. And uh, Britain, are you going to do something? Yeah, a uh, brand new Beatles song. What? <laughs> brand new Beatles song. Especially for the nights. 
yeah, we're going to bring the biggest band in the world doing a brand new song. <laughs> That's like bringing a gold-plated Rolls Royce to show and tell. Yeah, hmm. Yeah, we're amazing. I think that the 60s does seem, 60s television does seem to be more adventurous and also has a broader outlook. And I'll give you a couple of odd examples, actually, to back this up. Not just the instances that you've got on, say, BBC television over the course of the decade of them having Eurovision links and having more bits and pieces where it's not unusual, for example, in current affairs programmes to have interviews with politicians and statespeople and so on down the line and speaking to them in Paris or in Berlin or wherever it may be, you don't actually tend to get a great deal of that on television these days. You, you see pictures of Brussels. You hear occasional comments from, say, Angela Merkel or Francis Holland or whoever it may be. You don't actually tend to get, unless you go specifically looking around the schedule for Eurocentric programmes, you don't actually tend to hear a lot of continental European voices on British news programmes. If you have a look at a lot of sitcoms, for example, from 60s, 70s, some of the points of reference, some of the things that they talk about in terms of things that they've seen on television or things that they've read or whatever it may be, are actually quite broad and seem slightly more worldwide than programmes of later eras. I think it might have been The Telegraph a couple of years back. It was a really good piece. I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was that wrote this. It was such a funny little angle, but actually it was absolutely true. The author was arguing about how Britain has sort of dumbed down over the last couple of decades. And as an example of this, watch Old Bullseye on Challenge. And listen to the questions that the contestants are being asked. And they're much, much I believe the question was, who is the leader of the Ismaili people? The answer was... Yeah, we'll, we'll put the Aga Khan. Yeah, we'll put that in the post-production. Compare that to the kind of questions that you get on daytime game shows now, and they seem to draw from a much smaller knowledge base. And also, contestants go, "Oh, it's a bit before my time." Well, don't go on a quiz show then. If you draw a line under everything that happened before you were born, then you have no business here. I think there's an argument to be said that the emerging technology that the people at that time who are in charge of the airwaves who are in charge of broadcasting are looking to use the technology to its fullest potential and so they're staging programs like our world they're they're enjoying the novelty of shows like eurovision and so on so yeah i think that's fair i'm enough, just thinking actually. when we watch those eurovisions for our eurovision jukebox the eurovision song contest in the 60s just after a certain point certainly by 1966 just felt really confident and yeah europe is a cool place to be and even 10 years later, it's more like, and here's some nice European music. That also brings me to this idea that Benny Hill is a European comedian as much as he's a British comedian. He's an internationalist. Well, by the time that he was in his pomp, I mean, really established and safe and successful and what have you, he was quite often spending up to half of the year outside of the UK traveling. That's just what he'd like to do. I think he was particularly fond of France as a destination. One thing I should point out just now, because we normally do further reading right at the end of the show, but it would be remiss not to actually point out this right now. If it sounds like we really know our stuff about Benny Hill, and yeah, we've done plenty of research, and we've watched these BBC shows and, and so on. In terms of facts and figures, there is no finer reference work for Benny Hill than Mark Lewison's book, Funny Peculiar. It is absolutely brilliant. I think it's the gold standard as far as biographies 
of comedians are concerned because it's just got everything in there. It's such a thick volume and it just covers everything from A to B. I think it came out about 2002, thereabouts. Yeah, it's got everything in there. Certainly covers everything up to the BBC era. It covers the BBC era in full. It covers the Thames era very fairly and objectively. Yeah, a lot of these bits and pieces, when we start reeling off dates and facts and figures, then a lot of them are sourced from there. But we'll mention that again along with a couple of other titles at the end of the show. Yes, I would say it's fair enough that the audience perhaps is being given a bit more credit in this era. There was a documentary about Stanley Baxter in the late 90s on ITV. And by this point, late 1990s, the modern day template for documentary making has been set. It's basically take some clips of the person that you're talking about, get modern comedians slash celebrities to watch their material and react to it and so on. But one thing that Stephen Fry said in that documentary, he was citing a particular sketch of Stanley Baxter's, John Gielgud's Generation Game. And you can imagine exactly what this sketch was like. Basically, John Gilgood as if he was trying to do Brucey and Larry Grayson and what have you. And Stephen Fry said, bear in mind, this is about 1998, this documentary. He said, if you tried to do that sketch nowadays, some executive would say, no, because the public, they don't necessarily know who John Gilgood is. And that kind of presumptuousness seems to be prevalent today. That, that you, you never want to say or do anything which, which might alienate 0.1% of the audience because they've got more controls in their hand and they'll go elsewhere. But it then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. If you assume they don't know it, the chunk of the audience that doesn't know it doesn't learn it. The chunk of the audience that does know it forgets it or they're not hearing about these things anymore. Oh, odd citation as well. We were going to talk, well, we were looking around for subjects for Jaffa Cakes a few weeks back. We were bouncing a few ideas around, and we ended up watching a film, a Stanley Holloway film from 1953, called Meet Mr. Lucifer. It's an Ealing comedy, but it's one that's largely been forgotten. Uh, you might have seen it in gold recently, because it showed up on the Ealing season with Richard E. Grant in the last couple of months. Now, tell, think about the programmes that they were all watching night after night in 1953. What were they? They were talks. They were discussions. They were lectures on particular subjects and then you'd have a little bit of light entertainment thrown in and so on but largely it was pretty serious minded material wasn't it yes you know maybe next year we could do some lesser known ealing comedies and we could do Who Done It" from 1956 aha yes indeed to quote lewison funnily enough 1953 was a year that benny hill got his first television set and benny hill watched television prodigiously he watched it and absorbed it and made notes about it and lived his life around it. There's, there's plenty of photographs of him from the 1980s where he's in a largely bare living room with two televisions and two video recorders set up. I don't think he was ever quite as as an enthusiastic video recorder as Bob Monkers, for example. I don't, I don't think that he tended to keep things. He didn't keep stacks of videotapes or anything like that. But yeah, he, he watched television. That was his hobby. And he watched and watched and watched and took notes and notes and notes and just absorbed all of this. And that's why, of course, you've got all these wonderful little parodies of television in those BBC shows. Because they're not coming from a team of writers. It's not something along the lines of... And I don't, this, is, this is maybe an unfair thing to to, to volley. Because I don't know to what extent... When Harry Hill's TV work was on, I don't know how much of that was coming from Harry Hill. But I know that he had a team of writers and a team of researchers who were finding little bits and pieces the show. It wasn't all coming from Harry Hill. 
I quite like the fact that it's coming from the person in this instance who's performing these skits. These are things that he's seen himself. And also, I mean, like the things like the, like the What's My Line parody or the... Which, unfortunately, we don't have access to because I don't believe that that survives. But the Soapbox Jury, the Jukebox Jury parody. By this point, we've got split-screen technology. Mind that the Benny Hill's impersonations of these people will be based upon him seeing them on television. He's not going to have access to a video recorder. He might possibly have access to internal BBC recordings of shows, if recordings existed for some of those shows, but by and large this is material that he'll be watching the same as everybody else in the, the general public. And then coming up with these little bits and pieces, these observations, and the style of the show. And of course, the, the BBC shows themselves as well are beautifully produced, as the Thames shows are, but the BBC shows in particular it's helpful if you're doing a parody of something in the same studio as the show itself, because then it's easier to be able to replicate the precise look of the show and the sets and so on. That's why those Top of the Pops 2-1 skits are so good, because Michael Hurl is the producer of the show, <laughs> as well as being producer of Top of the Pops. It's fabulous. One thing's making me wonder about if it's necessarily watching the TV at home or stalking about television centre picking up gossip. Uh, the 24 Hours parody. It's a bit where Benny Hill is impersonating Cliff Mitchell more. Things go wrong with hilarious results, and then right at the end, he thinks he's off and he goes, Who was the bl... <laughs> and it cuts <laughs> off now. Apparently, Cliff Mitchell more was a bit more of a hard taskmaster than his on-camera appearance would necessarily indicate. Yeah, there was a clip from the election of 1970 where Mitchell Moore is caught on screen having terse words with his colleague, sophologist David Butler, who I've never heard him say a negative thing about anyone. He was interviewed by, I think it was TV Cream website, and he was talking at length about how much he enjoyed working with Richard Dimbleby. And then he said, and then I worked with uh, Cliff Mitchell Moore. And after him, then I worked with Alistair Burnett, and he was, he was a lovely chap to work with. <laughs> By omission, this, this was quite a revelation. But Benny Hill's got his, like, Mitchell Moore's little smirk. Uh, he's got that absolutely perfectly. Benny Hill is the first TV comedian in the United Kingdom. And so, nowadays, parody seems to be the, almost like the default setting for sketch shows. And certain comedians every once in a while come up with a nice new twist on the parody. So like Victoria Wood's parodies, for example, wouldn't simply be parody. There would be something about them. There'd be something unusual about them. Or if you've got something particularly off the wall, like, say, Peter Serafinovich, for example. And, and the kind of parodies that he's producing. Oh, I was thinking of Peter Serafinovich a lot when I was watching these because his sketch series was all parodies and then they did that one-off special which seemed to be an attempt to make him more appealing and everything had fallen away and suddenly there were ordinary sketches and it just wasn't the same. Or you can get something like just something utterly absurd like say Smell of Reeves and Mortimer so the kind of parodies that they're doing in there where they're loosely parodies but they're, they're grotesque and they're just nonsense. They're like a sort of starting point for what's to come. Whereas quite a few like shows in the decades subsequent to Benny Hill Parodies just become basically, oh, here's somebody who looks a bit like this person and now we'll sort of speak like them for a bit. I'm not naming any names, dead ringers. But, I mean, Benny Hill's got the keys to the sweet shop, hasn't he? He's well, the first I've made a note there. here. Going back to the middle-aged approach to comedy, the TV landscape's changing rapidly in the 60s. And I think Benny Hill, in a way, is making it less scary. But without dismissing it, He's just approaching it and saying, all the people you see on TV are just like us. 
and all of the new techniques that are happening could go wrong in funny ways. He did a Top of the Pops parody. I don't know when exactly it's from. So I'm, guess, I'm guessing it's maybe towards the end. It was probably maybe 68. But that bit where he has a Roy Orbison parody and he does the old Top of the Pops thing of a picture from one camera being overlaid with a picture from another camera. So you're seeing the artist from two points of view. And it means that Benny as Roy Orbison appears to be kissing himself. <laughs> so it's a lovely technical gag. And you've got to know how it's done to do it. These are the funny things that can happen in 1968 when television's made this way. Even though it's not the way you used to know, the things can happen. Whereas, then I started thinking about End of Part 1. Do you want to make your terrible confession? I'm not a fan of End of Part 1. I know that in TV nostalgia circles, that's a capital offence. Two things I think about it, and I'll be brief because this is getting off topic, but part of me sort of thinks, because it's an interest of mine, old TV, it, it gives me the sort of sweaty palms sort of feeling. Yeah, okay, I know this is like comedy that I'm supposed to appreciate, but I'm sort of wondering how other people are looking at this and so on. And also, I sort of get the impression that perhaps it's it's on a pedestal a little bit as far as TV officiados are concerned because it's about TV. And otherwise, it's a fairly weak sketch show. And if it was about another subject, then I don't think it would be as highly thought of within this particular group. So, apologies. I've seen a lot of in the part one skits and what have you, and it, no, it's it just not doing it for me. Series two is a lot better than series one. And I quite like series one. But that's taking the opposite approach. That's looking at television saying, oh, the same these days. Oh, it's so boring. Let's just keep poking at it. Which is fine if you think culture's not stimulating enough. Take a shot at it. It's just thought that's the opposite effect from Benny Hill in the 60s. There are a few times when Benny does comedy ad breaks. So it's lots of little quick fire sketches, best adverts. And he has the optic from ATV. <laughs> for those who might not have grown up with them, because they went away for a bit. I know they came back into fashion. I don't know if they still had them now. You weren't allowed to show commercials spliced together. You had to have a gap. But black screen between two brief shots could cause your TV to roll for a bit in the opening shot of the next commercial to go a bit funny. So you needed a little bit of movement and light. So they had these things called optics. Have you ever seen a television parody where something sharp and spiky... I mean, yeah, okay, you know that's the industrial. That's fine. I'm talking to the other ones, okay? They're good people, even though they don't know what the industrial is. If you see a spiky thing flying out of the screen between commercials, like when you're watching a repeat of the goodies or you've got the goodies on DVD... That's an optic. And Benny Hill has the correct optic for what would have been on in London at the weekends in the 60s. That's care. How did he get that? Did he get them to send him a copy? Well, no, here's a funny thing. Because when I was looking up some details earlier on, I stumbled across this. We of were we were talking for ATV. Now, this is the thing. When we were looking at the BBC shows, we mentioned Oh, he's got some ATV shows, and we're sort of wondering, how did that happen? Because he's a BBC guy, and, and Benny Hill was a BBC guy up until the point where he switched to Thames. He was, you know, very much sort of Mr. BBC, and he'd had a sort of approaches from commercial TV over the years and, and, and rebuffed them. He didn't particularly fancy going down that road, and yet did a block of ATV shows. He did some shows for ATV in 67, which caused a bit of a hoo-ha with the BBC, but before then, he did eight shows for ATV between 1957 and 1960. And you think, how on earth did that kind of thing happen? And, and what's the backdrop to it? Seemingly, 
when he was enjoying his first big year at the BBC, he began a starring role in a theatre review called Paris by Night that was being staged by Bernard Delfont. And Benny Hill rapidly realised that he did not enjoy theatre performances. He did not enjoy doing the same show quite often twice a night on the stage because he was never really comfortable on the stage anyway and he's doing the same damn thing twice every single night. It's just not his cup of tea at all. And yet the show was a huge success. So two years later the damn show's still going and he really wants to get out of this. So eventually he says to Bernard Delphine, look, can I get out of my deal? And Delphine let him out of his deal on the understanding that he would do eight shows for his brother, Lou Grade, running ATV over the next three years. So that's how it came about. So you think he got a copy while he was there? It's quite possible, isn't it? Yeah, maybe he sort of calmed things over at the BBC by saying, look, I've got some ideas, I've got some ideas while I was over there, and, you know, I'll I'll use them on here, I won't use them over there, I'll use them on here. (laughs) I think my favourite sketch was the Bo Peep one. It seems such a really 60s comedy idea where you come on camera and you say, now, here's the idea. Let's take this nursery rhyme, Little Bo Peep, and how would certain television programmes play that out? That kind of let's introduce a sketch with the idea up front seems to be something that stopped happening. I don't remember seeing that kind of thing when I was a young'un. But then it says, like, there's an episode of Zed Cars about stolen sheep. Uh, we get another Mitchell Moore impression, don't we? Yes, tonight. Right, his Shakespeare parody. That is Ronnie Barker-level stuff. It's unusual to see him doing something so wordy. Ronnie Barker was a big admirer of Benny Hill, wasn't he? Yes. The two Ronnies, I think, they are ever so slightly in the next wave of comedians after that post-war generation. And so I guess they would have been looking up to Benny Hill in his years on television previously. Well, don't they maybe benefit from Benny Hill leaving the BBC? Because I've heard this story that at some point somebody in the BBC said, do you do realise that the amount of money we're spending on Benny Hill's shows would pay for two other shows? This is the thing that's been thrown at Benny Hill and also the aforementioned Stanley Baxter and others over the years is this business of the cost of the shows. And to quote our friend Louis Barth, to quote David Bell at LWT, it's not your money, darling. There seemed to be a sort of attitude in maybe the first two or three decades of television, particularly perhaps in commercial TV, if that's how much it costs, that's how much it costs. And then we start to get a slightly different attitude coming in, John Burt. And before you know it, <laughs> everybody's penny-pinching and watching every single little outgoing, and so things get cut back and cut back and cut back. And we get to a point where, say, for example, okay, here's the here's difference between these shows and modern shows. That little Bo Peep sketch you're talking about there. It's repetition of an idea, but it's repetition of an idea not only in a really clever way, but also in quite an expensive way as well because you've got repetition after repetition after repetition but they're all different sets and different characters and so on and so on nowadays what you tend to get is an idea let's repeat that idea with the same characters and the same sets ad nauseum and then run that through like an entire series of shows that helps the budget doesn't necessarily help make the show funnier I've been watching the Malcolm Wise show, the BBC Malcolm and Wise show, all the way through again. I was always interested in the bits where they just have like a quickie 
and they've somebody's put up a set, put up the street corner set for. I'm not talking about you the bits we see in clips like you know Morny Stanit and things like that. It's like now sometimes they've put up a street corner set for a setup and a gag, and it's ten seconds, <laughs> and nobody's questioned that. I remember a comment on YouTube. Somebody had uploaded the first few minutes of a Brian Murphy sitcom called Elle for Lester. This is a sitcom he did at the BBC and he was supposed to be a driving instructor. And there's a scene that goes on for quite some time at the beginning of an episode where his car gets stuck in front of a train and it's being pushed along the tracks by the train. And this scene goes on and on and on. And somebody commented on YouTube and said, that must be a really expensive shoot. Because, you know, this is like outdoors and film and, and what have you. And yet it's not particularly funny. <laughs> I suppose there's something to that. Because, I mean, it just happened in that particular instance. That once you've seen the setup, it didn't really go anywhere per se. And so, yeah, okay, fair enough. But now, perhaps, would it be that the idea itself straight away would have to be cut down before it even got that far? This is a big tangent, really. But part of it is also there are more television companies small independent producers and you're losing certain economies of scale the bbc have a film unit that are probably getting paid whether they work or not something like that good old days of restricted practices that oh the 1990 broadcasting act (laughs) it's like how much location vt is used in itv shows because they have ob units that are there we can use that because they've just got the mega system. The, the, I mean, the BBC used to be a colossal machine that had all this stuff and there was no competition within the corporation. So it's that's partially it. It's not actually that expensive. You're using money that's flowing anyway. You have staff in the film department. You don't have to go out and hire people and hire equipment. The equipment belongs to the corporation. The people belong to the corporation. So, Benny Hill. Yes. <laughs> There's one gag I didn't get, and if anybody can explain this to me, I can't remember what's get. I only wrote down the line. Oh, dear. It was something about suggestive remarks. Somebody said, they're making suggestive remarks. It was like the Eamon Andrews show, and the audience goes crazy. <laughs> what famous thing happened on the Eamon Andrews show? I know about Kenneth Tynan on BBC Three. What happened on the Em and Andrews show that everybody goes, I know what that's about? I don't. I think that compilation was between 65 and 68. So, dear listeners, if you happen to know of anything controversial that happened on ABC TV involving Em and Andrews between those two years, do drop us a line and let us know. If that sketch had been 10 years later, you could have said it was like an evening with Bill Grundy. <laughs> There's another bit that stood out, which was the commercial for soap, the commercial for bath soap. And that was Benny all by himself doing a little bit of a Bob Newhart thing. Pretending to be the director of an advert for soap and asking an actress to strip off part of this commercial. That seemed different from everything else around it. They were just getting Benny by himself for a few minutes. I don't know this for sure, so it's not really a fair accusation to lobby. But as well as collecting his joke books and his prodigious watching of television. Benny Hill also liked to collect records and sometimes he would collect records that were imported, imported records of American comedians. I guess it is quite feasible that that is to put it in the fairest possible way, perhaps an adaptation of 
a Bob Newhart sketch. That, that, that's perfectly feasible. If it's something which had not had airplay in, in the UK, for example. Yes, because it is quite a change in the pace and it's unusual. Whereas one thing that we should acknowledge in watching these free compilations is that there is a fair bit of repetition. You do seem to... Not, not, not just particular lines, but sometimes specific ideas and so on. And this then spills over into the Thames era. And there are gags in the first Thames show, for example, in 69, which have just been used on the BBC a few years earlier. Actually, I'm trying to remember, wasn't there a gag in the first Thames show that was in the last BBC show? Like a year apart. I guess you're going to get this with any performer of a particular longevity. I mean, this happens with Lauren Hardy, for example. It's going to happen with any comedian who lasts throughout the decades. There's going to be a certain amount of repetition of their material. There's only so many ideas and gags that they can come up with. And after a while, they're going to have certain standards and what have you. Are there any comedians, are there any sketch show artists or anything like this who, who don't engage in that kind of thing? If, if they've got that body of work, I mean, surely. Perhaps with Benny Hill, it, it's a little bit more to the fore. I don't know, yeah, because I didn't want to be unfair, but it seemed to feel more of a Benny Hillish tendency than anybody else I was thinking of. Now, one of the frustrating things about the compilations is we don't know what sketch came from when. I mean, you can kind of tell a 64-ish sketch just by looking at it, but it was hard to get a sense of his development or otherwise. There was one sketch that I'm going to say is probably very early, probably, probably a 1958 sketch that was just him playing a horse-riding woman, insert correct word, that didn't seem to go anywhere. But it's like, well, that might be an early idea. That was an early sketch. Because we then watched his last full BBC show, which exists in what they call an optical transfer, which is somebody's pointed a camera at a telly. Not like a telly recording, oh no, it's a bit more shaky than that. And he's already moving towards some of the more recognisable stuff. He's slapping Jackie Wright on the head a lot in one of the <laughs> sketches. And it is just this silent sketch and it's a barber shop and it's a bunch of stuff happening in a barber shop and slap on Jackie Wright's head whenever he can't think of anything else to do. Henry McGee is in the team. Now, okay, then you, you, you've got to fess up here. You're not a fan of Henry McGee, are you? No, it's not one of those cases where... I think I've identified a weak spot or there's something I can say, well, the problem with Henry McGee is it's just personal, I think. It just, for some reason, I'm sure he was a lovely bloke, clearly a pro. Look at how much work he did. Obviously turned up, got the job done. He just bugs me for some reason. I can't build a case around that. Part of it is, is that he's a straight man and yet he's really, really delivering those lines to the back row of the gods. I mean, a straight man's job is to stand there and go, I see, and then what did you do? I see, and then what did you do? Which Henry McGee sometimes borders on doing. But it's just me, it's not him. Well, one thing that comes across in all of these shows, regardless of what era we're looking at, Benny Hill is not a selfish performer. He's not somebody who's going to throw a tantrum if anybody else gets a laugh. Hilda Baker. What was Benny Hill's name? Real name, birth name. Oh, uh, Alfred, was it not? Why did he call himself Benny? Jack Benny. Jack Benny is often talked about in terms of, I think he had a saying, which is if people laugh at the show and it's my show, doesn't really matter if they're laughing at my line. So I'm wondering if that's something 
Benny Hill was aware of and took to heart. Of course. I mean, everybody everybody gets laughs. Patricia Hayes gets laughs. Jackie Wright gets laughs. Everybody gets laughs in these different sketches. So Benny Hill doesn't strike me as being one of those artistes. And therefore, if Henry Biggie's going to slightly camp up the performance and get laughs with it, great. If he felt that Henry McGee delivering the lines in that particular way was working against the, the comedy overall and was actually damaging the sketch, then it wouldn't have happened. And Henry McGee does a bloody good impersonation of um, David Frost and Carrie on Emmanuel as well. Never seen that. You've got you to you <laughs> get it seen. It's superb. Unfortunately, one, one person we didn't see in, in any of these compilations because I know that he arrived at the BBC team around about the same time as Henry McGee and Jackie Wright, but we didn't see him in any of the BBC material was Bob Todd. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't go wrong with Bob Todd. Well, you've never had to work with them. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen him on that 321. There's a story in David Jason's autobiography about working with Bob Todd and it not entirely going according to plan. I think Bob Todd was up for a part in Danger Mouse. And David Jason was, I think, dreading it. Or maybe he was thinking, is he going to turn up? So... <laughs> I believe Bob Todd was mercurial. How many people have got the nerve to actually just drop down and play dead on the floor on three, two, one, and stay there till the end of the show? I mean, that that that's, <laughs> that takes some doing. Okay, Billy Dainty's a funny guy. I don't see him doing that kind of thing. I think he'd come on, he'd do his stuff, he'd go off. And so would just about everybody else. But It's not just TV that Benny Hill's interested in. Okay, I've written down a really ridiculous comparison in my notes. I have compared Benny Hill to Andy Warhol. Was this story here about Andy Warhol that the thing that they used to do to people who visited the factory was they'd just turn a camera on them and leave it there and said after a while the self-consciousness would kind of build and build and then break and you'd see the real person. Because part of that jukebox jewellery sketch, the main part of that jukebox jewellery sketch is the idea of the camera goes on to the audience and the people are caught by the camera and their reactions how these people react to this very novel experience. The good old days of people being nervous to be on television. And that's clearly something that interests Betty Hill. And I've also written down Anthony Asquith. At least two Anthony Asquith films where the camera is pointed at an audience in the cinema and watching them watching something and how interesting that is. Okay, I'll go for the triple. I also wrote down Jacques Tati. Little bits of human behaviour. Just tiny things, ticks, that's also something else. So I think if you want to argue Benny Hill back into the Hall of Fame, one tack to take is, is that there's a warmth and humanity. He's interested in people and he's kind to them. There's not a lot of get this jerk in his comedy. So after watching these BBC compilations and watching his last BBC show in full, we watched his first Thames show it's like, let's get a sense then how quickly he becomes the Benny Hill we remember. And it's almost immediate. The first sketch after the opening ident, there's a woman in a bikini and Yakety Sax is playing. Where was Benny Hill's mind at at this point? Because that almost seems like a deliberate thing to make the show sell better in Germany, I would say. <laughs> I've, got, I've written down here the German sense of humour. I know there are jokes in Britain about Germans not having a sense of humour, and I read an article about the German sense of humour, and that might no longer be true. It's probably about 20 years ago I read this article. 
But what it said was was that Germans like jokes, but they don't really like ambiguity. They don't really like too much deadpan. That one of the German words for joke translates as thigh slapper. They like their comedy turned up so that you know it's comedy. Now, that's probably changed. But that's obviously a strand that runs through what they like as comedy. And that seems to be the big shift there in that first Thames show. The music is no longer scored to the mood, like that neck parody. The music is going on, but it's the kind of music you would get in a 1960s drama. Maybe a light drama, but it's believably the score of the film that's being made fun of. When we get to Thames, it's... It's comedy! Okay, now... I give us some thought because we we were talking about this as we were watching the Thames shows, and yeah, we were both quite staggered as to, to how quickly it becomes Thames TV Benny Hill, as you recognise him. Okay, a few thoughts. Can't really pin any of these down as the definitive reason, but a few different ideas. One, there's the personnel change. He's moved to a different company, so he's working now with different producer, different director, different executive producer different people in charge of the music. Everything is different. All the people he's working with, different. And all of those people he's working with are working in commercial TV where perhaps it's fair to say that the overall style of comedy is maybe slightly more broad, slightly more accessible, slightly more sort of rumbustuous because this is commercial TV after all. And there's plenty of good ITV sitcoms over the years where you've got nice sort of subtle nuanced humor but there's also plenty of barnstorming stuff as well so that makes sense that that's the personnel he's now working with but i can't think of anything that's quite so hyper as this it it's back to my idea that benny hill somewhere became a european comedian i mean it became a big export thing under thames is that decision being taken before the cameras have started rolling or is it an idea that's hit Benny on one of his European jobs? Well, think about where Benny Hill is in 1969. So he is giving interviews, as he's been doing for a while, where he's been talking about wanting to move away from television and get into film in a big way. And he's appeared in a couple of films already, notably a couple of years earlier, The Italian Job. He has talked about wanting to become a film director sometimes. And he's just made The Waiters. A silent comedy. People in, perhaps in the TSW area are more familiar with it than, than it was. But you've got Pamela Condell. You've got David Batley. You've got a good old-fashioned silent comedy where you've got sound effects in tune with what's going on and otherwise you've got the kind of music, fast-paced music that you'd associate with a, a silent comedy which has been ever so slightly undercranked and so on. That's the idea that he wants to get into. His agent, Richard Stone, he's headbutting with certain people at the BBC and he is trying to engineer a move to the commercial side. Benny Hill's not enjoyed the ATV shows that he's done, so he doesn't have any interest in going back there. So Richard Stone contacts Brian Tesler at Thames to see if there's any interest in them bringing over Benny Hill. And a good Nine years before it happens again with Morgan Wise, the hook to bring Benny Hill over is making a film. 
Benny Hill has this idea for an old silent comedy called Eddie in August, and it's about a sort of lovelorn character, and it's a half an hour show. It's basically like a sort of extended sketch. That's the bait with which he comes over to Thames. So you could argue that he is developing this broader type of comedy because not because he thinks it's going to be better for the television shows but because he thinks that that's going to be his route into cinema and he's got one eye on like you said before say Shaq Tatty for instance he wants to go into silent comedy that's going to appeal throughout continental Europe so that may explain why he's getting slightly away from the more subtle wordy humour of the BBC era and a bit more into the the more visual material attempts this is where Tony Hancock was trying to head as well. If we imagine a world where Tony Hancock dies in 1988 rather than 1960, and I bet he would hate Benny Hill. Assuming that Tony Hancock didn't make some massive international leap. But I know Hancock was obsessed with Tetty. Benny Hill moves to Thames, 1969. His first show is in the first week of colour. And so aside from the ITV colour strike of 71, all of his shows from this point onwards are in colour. His contract with the BBC commits them to repeating his most recent four BBC One shows. Now, there's a book by Barry Took called Star Turns about, unusually enough, because of the sad situation of the, the, the passing over the same weekend, Benny Hill and Frankie Howard. And in there is correspondence from the BBC to Richard Stone, in which the BBC state... We may be contractually obliged to repeat Benny Hill shows, but you do not seriously expect us to build an audience for your performer who's now going to be working for commercial television. We will arrange payment in lieu of the repeats. They paid Benny Hill for the repeats, and then they wiped the shows. Now, they didn't wipe his earlier material, which is why we're able to sit here and talk about it just now, because a lot of that material survives. But those four shows, they thought, right, he's ITV property now. We're not going to build an audience for ITV they went and so we're lucky to have that optical recording of that one show because can't see the other three because they're gone and that does seem a bit mean-spirited so we watched the first time show and i was going to draw a line under that and you said no we, we need to get more of a sense of classic benny hill so we watched two more shows do you have any comments about that because we watched his last Thames show and there's something there that shows how far he'd drifted from his accurate parodies. Well, I think originally you said to me, can we, can we have a look at his first Tim show and his last Tim show? Which we did, but but I thought that that was possibly a little bit unfair. I wasn't setting him up for a fall. I just, we'll just get a sense and we'll move on. I'm not here to bury Benny or to praise him, just to dust him off and say, let's have a think. Well, we, we watched both of those and also we watched a show right from Slap Bang in the Middle from 1979. And... Strangely enough, I've got to be honest and say that the one from 89 was the one I actually enjoyed the most. I wasn't really massively enjoying any of them. There's no point in trying to read something into this with hindsight, because we know this is not the case. You could sort of look at it and say, oh, well, he knew his sort of time was up and what have you, so now he's just having fun with it and he's doing whatever he wants to do. We know that's not true, because that sacking in 89 came completely out of the blue. He didn't know that was going to happen. But there is just a slightly sort of anarchic sense. There's one skit, and we're not explicit, Tag, on this podcast. And and you would not believe how many words Tilt has to actually edit out that I come out with every single recording, because I'm a filthy, foul-mouthed beast. 
But there's one skit in that 89 show where two four-letter words have been spelled out as part of a dance routine, and it absolutely made me burst out laughing because I was thinking, blimey, they're really getting away with that. What did Clive James say about Betty? Well, no, I don't know, because he obviously must have upset him at some point. There's a fake credit roll, and there's a character in called Dick Head, and it says Clive James. Wow. There are, there are bits and pieces which are slightly sort of more edgy in that last show. And then we have the dreaded Hills Little Angels, and I'm not going to say any more than that. That's you were warning me about this. You go, oh, oh, don't let it be Hills. Oh, no, it's Hills Little Angels. And I could see the thing is that the, the, the bad thing about modern technology, particularly like media players on your PC, is that they actually show you how long the episode's got to go. So you can tell when it's eight minutes before the end, you know that this skit is going to go on for eight minutes. There ain't going to be anything else at the end of this. There's not going to be any reward for sitting through this. There are a couple of bits that are television parodies that show his discipline seems to have gone. One is a Kojak sketch that has... Okay, he's dressed as Kojak, and he's dressed as Crocker, is it? I think he's dressed as another character from Kojak. But all it is is a setup for... Well, effectively a bunch of repurposed Irish jokes. It doesn't look like Kojak. It's shot on VT. And it doesn't need to be Kojak. And then there's one in his last shot. He does this police sketch called The Good Guys, which has the theme tune from the air team. (laughs) So it's already, where? Then later on he has a parody of The Bill, which is more of the same. He's not making fun of any of the characters from The Bill. Way back when he's doing this Bo Peep sketch and he's doing a Zed Cars thing, he's, okay, his Brian Blessed impression is not recognisable, but his Stratford Johns is okay, and we get a big laugh out of Stratford Johns' high forehead. But in this, it's just, it, right, here's the Bill theme tune, it's the Bill, and here are some policemen doing silly things. And so you could have just had a much longer police sketch, or you could have had a Bill sketch and then had a callback to the Bill sketch. You've got two sketches that are effectively the same with two different setups, and neither of them are from observation. So that's the thing that sometimes a good joke is made from understanding and observation, and this just seemed to be, oh, what's funny, policeman? And Bob Monkhouse has suggested that Benny Hill had sort of twigged that having the Hells Angels and what have you, that that tended to work well, particularly in the export markets. There's two things I can see in operation there. One, European sales. The Europeans like more of that kind of thing. There's more of that kind of thing happening than was happening on British TV. I'm not going to do the whole objectification argument because I don't have a new and original answer for that. You're all capable of making your minds up where the boundaries are on that. So part of that is... It will sell well on the continent because they expect it and they don't really get it from other British shows. And yet it will sell well in America because it's so far ahead of what they're doing. It's the thing I've said before about British cinema in the 30s and 40s. It wasn't that there wasn't censorship happening, but we didn't have the code in the same way. So occasionally you'll watch a fairly mainstream British movie and there's just a little bit that doesn't seem like Hollywood movies at the same time. There's just that element of, yeah, we don't have the code here. I believe it's why The Private Life of Henry VIII was such a big splash, because some of the stuff in that, you could get it to the US because it's already made. You can export it. This movie's already been made. Some of the stuff in there would have been killed at the script stage. 
or gone before the final edit. And it's possibly just a case of it burning some bridges for Benny back home because it's not just a feminist argument. Gary, you've mentioned this before, mention it again, one of the earliest swipes at Benny Hill because of all of his scantily clad angels. Yeah, it's not what you'd think it would be because obviously the guy who gets this repeatedly sort of aimed at him is Ben Elton because he, he not only mentioned it in print, but he also did a routine about it on Saturday Live as well. But a few years before this, in 1981, of all publications to criticise Benny Hill for being too risque and lewd and what have you, was The Sun. I, I would need to have a really good look at the context of, of what was going on at that time in the newspaper industry to be able to work out, well, this was some sort of deflection tactic. But it does seem an odd place to criticise Benny Hill for that, but they wrote a, a, an editorial piece and they said, you know, Benny, it's time to clean up your act. And strange, but I mean, one thing you can say about The Sun and tabloids like that, they, they know their readership by and large. I mean, they make mistakes, but by and large, they're trying to tap into what their readers think. And so Perhaps it was the case that in the early 1980s, perhaps it was the case that people were starting to view the shows a little bit differently. And it's only a few years after that, of course, that you do get those joking about how awful those sketches are, because they really are. But I mean, that whole Hill's Little Angels business was an attempt to sort of roll back. And a similar way to the way that Sid James, for example, took the role of Sidney Abbott in Bless His House. It was an attempt to sort of move his persona along a little bit because he was getting older he was it was seen as slightly unseemly for him to be still chasing around Barbara Windsor and what have you in the films so yeah I can imagine that he's sort of thinking well okay subtle little adjustment like that and it moves the show into a slightly sort of different type of comedy because now it's sort of more sort of cute humor what have you I don't think it does the show any good to be honest did he ever meet Hal Roach because wasn't Hal Roach a fan of Benny Hill yes I believe he was yeah there's a slight sense of Hill's Little Angels being like our gang, but done wrong. Because you said there was this whole thing of not getting stage school kids, which was the rule originally on our gang. I think it starts to drift. Even one of their better movies has this sudden burst of stage school brats. But yeah, it just doesn't quite come off. They're just typical Benny Hill sketches, but with some children falling around laughing at Benny's antics. So... I know there was a documentary, and I never watched it, called Is Benny Hill Still Funny? Did you watch it? I did not watch that. I didn't want to see it. Because I'm just wondering what the... That, that's like the question we've been asking now. But I'm wondering what tack they took, because is it all going to come down to Hill's Angels? And I think our point is there's much, much more to Benny Hill than that. So if you think the Hills Angels era is great, then he didn't lose it. Maybe you think the BBC era is terrible. If you think the Hills Angels stuff is bad, it's the story is that's not what Benny Hill was, though. There was a time before that when he was very different. And we were talking with our friend Tyler, and he found out what we were going to be doing. So he got hold of the same compilations we did. And we got some of his reactions, so he's saying... 15 minutes in, it's made me laugh out loud four or five times, which doesn't happen very often. Nice parody of The Collector. I know he's impressed with the, the Knack parody as well. I see what you mean about him being cine-literate and contemporary for the time, 
I've read about him being a true comedy genius, judging him by the Thameshaws and the latter backlash, you'd struggle to recognise that. This BBC material, albeit only 15 minutes in, is very good. And he'd mentioned how one time he'd started a thread on a message board saying, Benny Hill, is he any good or not? And I don't think that discussion really went anywhere. Because <laughs> that's message boards, they suck! <laughs> There's a reason why there isn't a Jaffa Cakes for Bruce message board, and there was never a sitcom club message board. I know this is really unfair because I know I haven't seen that documentary and I deliberately did not watch that documentary because I saw the way it was billed and I thought, well, I remember the last time that Channel 4 did a documentary about Benny Hill and the, the, the garbage that came out of that. And so, okay, this is just about me. This is not a comment on, on anyone else or different generations or anything like that. I don't care what people thought from that documentary. Whoever they showed Benny Hill to of whatever era they were from and whether they thought it was funny or not. I don't care. Hell's teeth. Programs like that documentary are what's now created Gogglebox, for goodness sake. We've actually got to the point now where we're putting viewers watching television on television and we're supposed to give a damn about what they've got to say. So, Benny Hill could have done a good parody of that. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. But I think that Benny Hill is certainly unfairly lambasted for being supposedly sexist and so on. He definitely sexes up his shows, there's no doubt about that. And I think you could level the accusation at him of getting lazy. Yeah, but I think you could say that about a lot of comedians as well. I don't have the quotation in front of me, but I remember a few years back, I think Steve Martin addressed this business about the the constant criticism. You know, like Dennis Pennis asked him directly, how come you're not funny anymore? Steve Martin basically said, why do I have to be either as funny as I was before, in your opinion, or the same comedian that I was 20-odd years ago? So, with all that said, next time on Traffic Cakes of Proust, what in the wide world of television are we talking about? We're looking at 1975 children's drama, The Changes. This is something that's been hanging around for a while, ages and ages and ages ago. Birdie asked us, I think if we'd ever seen it, if we had any opinions on it. And as it happened, I had it on DVD. And I did have opinions on it. So it's like, right, that goes on the list. And it's been on the list pretty much since Jaffa Cakes of Proust started. And we're finally getting around to talking about it. We can talk about children's drama and children's television in general. Different approaches, different things. Why, maybe you could argue that children's television is not in a slump these days the way that we sometimes say other television is, and why Nikki from The Changes is a fantastic heroine. Maybe Birdie will have different opinions. Maybe she'll push back against our opinions. Maybe Gary won't like it at all. It's all to be dealt with next week. If, indeed, you have anything for us, if you've got a suggestion for something we could talk about in a future show or anything of that ilk, then please do message us. You can tweet us at JaffaGigsForProust. More on that in a second, Twitter users. You can email us at feedback at sitcom club. If you've got anything you want to email us, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. And of course, you can find all of the previous Jaffa Cakes and Sitcom Club podcasts, along with 800 different podcasts across a whole manner of different shows at podnose.com. Further reading. We've mentioned Mark Lewison, of course. Funny and peculiar. Fabulous book. Get it. You will not regret it. Also, the book I mentioned by Barry Took, which is long since out of print, but you might be able to find a copy of it somewhere. It's called Star Turns. Dennis Kirkland, Benny Hill's producer-director at Thames in his latter years, he had a nice wee biography of 
Benny Hill. Rather heartbreaking story in there about when Benny Hill met Michael Jackson. And the shows that we're talking about, Benny Hill The Lost Shows, they're only available in Region 1 DVDs. You have to get them from Amazon.com. And they came out from Warner Home Video. And of course, Network in the UK have released all of the Thames shows. They're called the Benny Hill Specials, or Benny Hill Annuals rather. They're cut up into years, but there's now box sets. You can get the entire 20-year run of them. So, Tilt. Goodbye. This is Gary saying thank you very much indeed for listening to Java Cakes with Benny. Goodbye.